Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to two places with you. We're going to start in Romans chapter 8, and we're going to end up landing in Genesis 17. Romans chapter 8 and Genesis chapter 17. And I've entitled our Bible study, God's Overruling Power in Our Lives. God's Overruling Power in Our Lives. After such a big mistake, what did Abram need? How about asking the question this way? After such a big mistake that we have made, uh, perhaps a big sin or a, a long season of rebellion or a stumble in purposely sinning along the way, what do we need? And I believe the answer to that is a fresh revelation of God. A fresh revelation of God in His holiness, in His glory, and in His grace. God is ready to stir up faith even after a huge mistake. And I, I just see that we tend to give up on people long before God ever will. And when I say that, I want you to include yourself because I just sense that we give up on ourselves long before God ever does. Which brings us to this encouraging passage in Romans chapter 8 in verse 31. Romans chapter 8 verse 31 Paul is writing to the church and he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And it's encouraging. What can we say to the glorious truths of God? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Well, let me just say that the statement doesn't mean that because God is for us, you're not going to have any adversaries or any difficulties or any tribulations. That's not the question that Paul is asking here. It's not the point he's making. The point that he's making is that if God is for you, who can really be victoriously against you? Who can get the victory? Not even yourself. And then in verse 32, he gives us the proof to those of you that have failed. He's given you the proof to those that have wandered away. He's giving the very place of God's love, the proof of God's love and care for us. And the argument goes this way. Since God gave his son for us, how will he not give us all things? God has provided a way for your sins to be forgiven. It was sacrificial on his part. Anything else is less than that. And certainly, if he's given you his best, he'll continue to guide you and love you and even protect you in his grace and his mercy. And this is the ultimate evidence. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I mean, this is a foundational truth in your relationship with Jesus. This is how it all started. That even while you, were, you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins, God gave his best. Gave his best for you and me 
to walk into relationship. And, and so it brings us to a couple of foundational truths if you're taking notes. Just kind of thinking of studying the life of Abram. Maybe Abram's life becomes a mirror of your own. But from these two verses, we learn a couple of things. Number one, God will not withhold anything that's good from us. God will not withhold anything that's good from us, that for us. That's what he says. How, how will he also give us, freely give us all things because of the testimony of giving Jesus? Again, in Psalm 84, verse 11, it says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. And listen, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So since God is for us, how can he be against us? I know that many people, they get themselves into trouble, they get themselves into a difficult spot, and then what happens? They start to blame God. They blame God, it's all his fault. Look what he's doing to me. Look what he's saying, look, look what's happening to me, when all the while, God has been very gracious, and very loving, and very caring. He, he's been very merciful, and if, if you will return to him, you'll begin to see his mercy right away. You'll begin to experience his grace and his love in a real way. And because he's given us his own precious son, again, the argument goes, how is he going to withhold any good thing from you? He's not for those who walk uprightly. Now, of course, this isn't a blanket of selfish ambition for us, but the desires of our heart are to have what God wants. Not only that, number two, we're reminded that God is strong and steady and reliable in the small and the large stuff in our lives. How do we see this? Well, God has taken care of our biggest problem, sin. He has, dealt, he has done away with the pain and the penalty of sin by faith in Jesus Christ. This is the most incredible obstacle that you and I would ever face, and that we could ever have in our lives, and yet Jesus came and paid the price for us. And then thirdly, I see God is ready to help you if you call upon him. God is ready to help you now if you will choose to call upon his name. That's really what Romans 8 is saying to us. If you call upon the name of the Lord, he will hear you. He cares for you. And I think that this, in light of failure, come with me now to Genesis in chapter 17, in light of the failure of Abram, you know, this New Testament truth is seen in this Old Testament story. After great failure, in Genesis 16, a significant low place in the life of Abram, in the life of Abram and Sarai. I mean, this mistake, and I know we're using the word mistake, but we can also say this sinful mistake took Abram out of fellowship with God for 13 years. It's not until 13 years later now in chapter 17, it says when Abram was 99 years old that the Lord appeared to him. Why? Because that's what he needed. He needed a fresh appearance of God, a fresh revelation of God. Now the Bible doesn't say anything about what happened in these 13 years. It's just silent. It just goes from the end of chapter 16. And just to remind me of the math, I have a little note here that there's a gap of time between these two verses through 16 verse, you know, six, chapter 16, verse 16, where it says Abram's 86. And then chapter 17, it opens up when he's 99. So there's nothing happening that's notable of God in the life of Abram, this man of faith, for 13 years until he gets this fresh revelation. We don't find Abram hearing from God. 
We don't find Abram speaking with God. But God isn't done with Abram in the silence or in the separation. And let me tell you, friend, God's not done with you either. He's not done with you in any way whatsoever, no matter the decisions you make, no matter the failures that mark your life. God is ready to give you a fresh revelation. Maybe even right now, God will come to you as he does with Abram. And he says, look, notice what he says in verse one. I am almighty God. And you guys familiar with the Hebrew, this is El Shaddai. I am the almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless. 13 years later, I am almighty God, Abram. And this is what's required of you. Come back to me. Come back to me with a blameless life. I know in our English language, blameless sounds perfect, but really it's a life of integrity. It's a word that speaks of integrity and character. Come back to me and let me form your character. Take on my identity. I am almighty God. Now I want you to notice the different names for God here in verse one. The first one As Abram was 99, it says, you'll notice the word Lord is in capital letters. We've learned already, but by way of review, that whenever you see in the New King James, the word Lord in all those caps, capital L and then lowercase caps, that is in reference to the name of God, Jehovah. This name is often used in the Old Testament. Moses comes and God identifies himself as the I am. This is the covenant name of God. In the Hebrew, it's only four consonants, Y-H-W-H, and some have filled that in with Yahweh, Jehovah, but it speaks of a personal relationship with God, intimate and close. I am the Lord. Not only that, he describes himself as, in the second thing is Almighty God or El Shaddai. It literally means God comes to Abraham and says, I'm the mighty one. And I think that's a great understanding of who God is in the midst of failure. Because your failure isn't fatal as you repent and turn to the Lord. Although a man falls seven times, he will rise again. And I mean, that is the testimony of Abram. Success and failure, success and failure, this great man of faith. And so the next word he hears that's recorded for us after 13 years is, I am almighty God, El Shaddai. 48 times it's used in the Old Testament. And the stress upon this identity, identification of God, is both the power and sufficiency of God. Why is that important after failure? Because, you know, sometimes you get to the place where you think there's no recovery from this. There's no coming back from this. I I don't even know how to come back. I don't even know how to undo the previous years. I don't even know how to handle this situation and all the damage that I've done here and all the people I've hurt there and all that. I don't even know what to do. And God comes to you and says, I am sufficient. If God be for us, who can be against us? That is the word of the God. And so here, Abram's being reminded of the power of God to meet the needs of his people, no matter how great the needs might be. And the Almighty God is sufficient, not only available and powerful, but sufficient. He has enough sufficiency and enough power and enough blessings to take care of his people, especially to a man who has greatly failed. And you know, if you study the scriptures, El Shaddai is used most often in the book of Job. Over and over again, Job was reminded of the power and sufficiency of God in the midst of his heartache. 
So here, after 13 years, Abram and God are talking again. It's such a great moment. Abram has spent the last 13 years reaping what he has sown. And I'm sure if we had an opportunity to talk to Abram and just ask him a simple question, was it worth it? He would say, not at all in any way. Let me share my testimony. Let me tell the people how much it wasn't worth it. And you can ask anyone. We don't need Abram. We won't meet Abram until eternity anyway. But you can ask many, many people that are even among us that have wasted years by rebelling against God, wasted years by sinful mistakes, reaping the consequences. You can ask them if it was worth it. Those that have left and haven't returned and those that have left and have returned to the Lord, and they'll tell you the same thing. It wasn't worth it. It wasn't in any way an even exchange. And truly what we learn in that 13-year gap is there's nothing worse than being out of step and out of fellowship with God. It's such a difficult place to be. Notice what he says in verse two. God is speaking. He says, I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. So God speaks to him in the midst of his restoration. He says, I'm making a covenant with you. For the followers of Christ, the covenant is already available to you. You were living in the new covenant. And so if God was to come and speak to you today, he would say to you that my new covenant still exists in your life. It is the finished work of Christ My relationship with you is not measured by your failures, not measured by your difficult, not measured by your wandering. But for Abram, he needed to hear this. And if you count up, I counted up, you may have it come to a different number, but I counted up at least 13 times how God says, I will, in this chapter. And I'm I'm not into all the significant little details in this, but it is significant to me that there seems to be And I will for every wasted year (laughs) in the text here. Isn't God just so precise? So I said, I'm going to do this on your behalf, Abram. I'm going to take even your failures and turn them around for good. God lays out the plan and the pattern for Abram to experience the blessings of God. And he reminds us today that there's really not much for us to do. There's nothing for us to do really to experience the grace of God. It's already been done for us. Truly, we come to God open and humble and repentant and immediately we receive the benefits and the blessings of relationship. And all Abram could do in verse three is just fall on his face. And I'm certain those of you that have walked with Jesus long enough have had this experience where you're just overwhelmed by the goodness of God. You're just speechless. You just fall on your face. That's really what, he literally fell on his face. It's a place of humility and brokenness, but also in a very practical way, a very spiritual way, I should say, that you find yourself humbled under the goodness of God. Because I mean, as we were praying today, thinking about sharing your testimony, for some of you, that's a difficult place to go, to go back to your testimony, (laughs) to go back to where you came from to have to recall what God, the pit that you were in when God rescued you. 
And yet at the same time, when you think about it and you get over perhaps some of the difficulty or how the enemy wants to sow seeds of regret into your heart or, or any of those things, then you, but, but you're also then responding. It's like, no, 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 God is so good. He delivered me. I, I am, I mean, what, what response can I give to him but to fall on my face? And, and in that place of humility, notice it says in verse three, it says, he fell on his face and God kept speaking. And when I invite as I often do, and for some of you it may be brand new, but I want to continue to invite you and disciple you and help you understand that the place of before the altar here, before the stage here, is to be used any time during our worship service, any time we're singing, any time we're in a position of prayer that you can use this. It probably wouldn't be really comfortable if you did it right now because it would be very distracting what the Holy Spirit's doing, speaking and teaching the Word of God. But during times of worship, there are different postures that you can take with your body that can speak of what's happening in your heart. You, you can lift up your hands, as Pastor Ian will often ask us, and you know, lifting up your hands is kind of a, a place of surrender. And it's difficult for some of you. It's kind of embarrassing to some of you. I was just with a family uh, with Marie at the hospital this afternoon, and very difficult situation, and um, very, very difficult in the ICU. And I was speaking to his son, who I've known this family for many years since we moved here, and he shared with me a memory that he had of his dad, who happens to be in the hospital right now, in the hospital bed, of the time we went to Israel. And it was just a special moment in the upper room that we were having that back then, back then, I think it was 2008, they allowed you to sing in the upper room. They don't allow you anymore. And it was just a special time. Pastor Ian came in and he started playing a song and we began to sing. And then everybody in the room began to join us in song when all these different languages, it was just unbelievable. We, we try to duplicate it the next year. It's just not, you can't. It was from the Lord. It was from the Lord. But the testimony that was shared with me was the moment of his dad, watching his dad for the very first time. We were kind of talking about his past and how he didn't come to really a strong faith later in life. And, and one of the testimonies that brought tears to his eyes and his wife standing there was when he was with his dad and he watched his dad lift his hands in praise. He had never seen that before in his dad. And I wonder in your own testimony that maybe you're holding back from God. And even as every time Ian asks you to lift your hands, you won't do it. And the Lord is just saying, no, go ahead and surrender. It may even be a testimony to someone that's been watching you their whole lives. And you just have surrender. That's a great posture. Another great posture is to get down on your knees in a time of humility and you're just down on your knees in whatever. You know, you come in a suit and a tie, you come in shorts, or you have to arrange your dress or your skirt in such a way where you're just like, no, I just feel like, sometimes we'll even sing the song, and you know, in the, one of the Christmas songs, fall on your knees. Well, that's an instruction. You may feel burdened to do it, and you should. You can do it in the seat there. You can come up to the stage. Some, sometimes there's that posture, like Abram here, of just laying face down. And I'll tell you, one of the hesitancies that is among most of us is that you just think it's going to be embarrassing. You talk yourself out of obedience. And, and it, you talk yourself out of obedience in things that are small, that are easy. Nobody is going to walk up to you and go, you know what, you were just, that was embarrassing, man. Why are you laying down on your face? 
And I mean, if anyone ever does that, it's like, bro, what's your problem, man? <laughs> Let me pray for you. Let me lay hands on you in a very prayerful way. But nobody's going to do that. I mean, of all the years we've been, nobody, nobody, I've never heard that testimony. And if they do, maybe the Lord is just connecting you to, to explain to them what the Lord was doing in your heart. You, you demonstrate it, but you're not even doing it for other people. You're doing it because God is ministering to you. Abram just fell on his face. This grown man, 99 years old. 99 years old, and God is speaking to him, and he falls on his face. And listen, in our time of gathering like this, God is speaking to you. We pray, like Jesus said, that we might have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And I will continue week after week and month after month and year after year as the Lord would allow me to encourage you to express yourself. Maybe you grew up in a tradition, a church tradition, where it wasn't encouraged to express yourself. But God, worship of God and ministry, it, it is an emotional experience at times. It is something you can feel. Not every time, especially if you're more emotional. And you know what we would ask, and we would just ask you to consider is, don't draw attention to yourself. Like, don't come up and go, hey, everybody, I'm going to get on my face right now. Or, you know, start running laps in the sanctuary or some weird thing. Don't bring your flags or your tambourines and, and like, look at what I'm doing. No, no we, will, we will ask you, stop it. This isn't about you. It's about God ministering to you. And so it's not to come up to the front of the stage and go, look at me, everybody. Watch me. If, if that's your motive, then you, you are not hearing from the Lord. God will never say, hey, I want you to get all the attention. He will never say that to you, ever in a million years. He will never say, I just think the Lord's called me to go up and do jumping jacks on the front of the stage, all for the Lord. He will never tell you that. I'm not saying you won't hear it, but that's just voices in your head, all right? It's like, God will never tell you to do that. But would he say, you know what? You know, when pastor says that, you should just come up and lay face down and worship me and I will speak to you. Yeah, I think I could hear it from the Lord. Abram's just overwhelmed. It's not even an instruction from God. He's just humbling himself. I mean, I think in a practical way too, like, you know, in his heart, I think if you haven't heard from the Lord in 13 years and you hear from him, it's going to humble you. And how much humility do we need? As much as we can take as much as we can experience. None of us are as humble as we need to be. And God is going to do, you know, a humility of just expressing ourselves and hearing from the Lord. I think this is a place of Abram's great dependence upon God. And he tells him in verse four, my promise still stands. I'm making a covenant. It, it, is, it still stands. What we did with those animals years ago, it still stands. It still stands. You're going to be a father of many nations. And it says in verse five, he changed his name. This was a new experience for Abram. And he changed his name because he wants, to walk, he wants Abram to walk in a new identity. It's just like the new covenant. It's just like the work of Jesus in your life. You are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You and I need to learn how to walk in our new identity in Christ, fulfilling the new destiny upon our lives. It's a destiny not of failure, but of success in the Lord, of humility and brokenness, of obedience and dependence that he defines who we are. And Abram, his name, Abram, the name Abram means exalted father, but the name Abraham means father of a multitude. 
So he's going to carry the name of the promise, just like you do. Just like you and I do in Christ. We carry the name Christian, Christ-like. We carry the name of Jesus upon ourselves. It's not just some religious name that we have because we go to church. It is the very reminder of the identity that you and I have in Jesus. Every time you use it. Every time you remind yourself. And notice in verse 6 he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant, verse 7, between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. And I will also give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are stranger, all the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So this is the lineage of Messiah through Abraham. And also speaking of the land, the promised land given to the lineage of Abraham. And these, these are the ingredients. Verse 7, I will establish my covenant between you and me and your descendants for an everlasting covenant to be God for you and your descendants after you. Out of you, Abraham, will come nations and kings. Out of you, Abraham, will be a land for you to dwell. An everlasting covenant. Now, this is important in verse 7, this everlasting covenant, because you'll hear many in the church today say that the church has replaced Israel in the eyes of God. It is a doctrine known as replacement theology, I think is foreign to the scriptures. It, it comes to us from Roman Catholicism and then through Protestantism. You know, when Martin Luther stood up for reform within the Roman Catholic Church and he was expelled, he took a lot of Roman Catholicism and doctrine with him into Protestantism. And this was one of them, this replacement theology. Now all of a sudden God is done with Israel, that he's given up on Israel. And now all the promises to Israel have been transferred to the church. Now we don't have time to get into that, but I already have in-depth taught on these topics and these studies are available on our app or online, calvaryco.church, through Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. So if this interests you, I went into depth in our study in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, because the word everlasting is an important one to Abraham. Everlasting speaks of an eternal covenant. It's the same word used to describe everlasting life. And if the promise to Abraham and thus Israel was not everlasting, and this is just simple logic, not even a biblical theology that I go into in Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, but just simple logic. And it goes like this. If the promise to Abraham and thus Israel is not everlasting, then we're in big trouble because then we don't know what promises God keeps. If we can just change all along, then we don't know what promises. But it's both to Israel it, the Bible says in John 10, verse 28, Jesus said, I give them eternal life. And you can bank your life on the finished work of Jesus Christ, just like Israel can bank their life on the eternal promises of God. It's good to know that our failures will not thwart the will of God. Because this room is filled with failure. Can I get an amen on that? Just agree with it. Just agree with it. If you don't agree with it, that's another failure right there. Uh, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
We all have struggles and wrestlings and even failures today, perhaps. And yet the grace of God is greater. And to us, by faith, God gives eternal life. Again, that's something you want to study, Romans 9, 10, and 11. Pick up in verse 9 now. God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. Ouch. But that's going to be the sign. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, he who is born in your house or bought with money from any stranger who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the, circumcised, the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here is the responsibility, the sign, not the work to earn the covenant. The covenant has already been made. Covenant, again, just by way of review, we've learned this in previous studies, but it, it means agreement or contract. The contract, the agreement I'm making with you, Abraham, the sign of it to enjoy is circumcision. For the male, I want you to understand, you Bible students, that this outward sign of God's permanent agreement for Abraham came after his faith. I want you to see that in the, in the timeline of our study. We already have learned that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, God says, this is the sign of this faith covenant that my people believe in me. This is the sign. This will be the reminder to them. Circumcision. Now, the act of circumcision was indeed a sign of a relationship with God. It was a sign, but not the source. The source was faith. So if anyone asks you, how were people saved in the Old Testament? The answer is not as complicated as it sounds. A person who was saved in the Old Testament, the same way they are saved in the New Testament, by faith. The faith was in Messiah to come for the Old Covenant. In the New Covenant, faith is in the Messiah who came, lived, died, and rose again. So there wasn't two sets of criteria for people following God. There were different covenants, but the criteria remained the same. It was faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the world divided into circumcised and uncircumcised. The world was divided to those of part of the covenant, those that were not part of the covenant. How would we describe that today? The world is divided into two categories, believer and unbeliever. It's always been that way. Now circumcision, the physical cutting away of the flesh, the private parts of an eight-year-old boy, is very much like water baptism for the church. Water baptism for the church is an outward sign of an inward work. It does not, it is a sign and not a source of salvation. It is not biblical. Again, coming to us through Roman Catholicism, 
into Protestantism, and it's still with us many today, it is not biblical in any way whatsoever for churches to tell you that you must be water baptized to be saved. That water baptism, according to the Bible, is for believers, not babies. Believers, not babies. Because if water baptism was necessary, then that would mean your salvation is based upon your work of baptism. And we already know in the Bible, again, this is another, if you look up on the website, water baptism, I teach this on that topic. It is a work of righteousness. Water baptism, a work of righteousness. Saved people get water baptized, not unsaved people. If an unsaved person comes into the waters of the Roar Reservoir or up in one of the tubs that we have here uh, and an unbeliever gets in and they don't repent of their sins and don't confess Jesus as their Lord, the only thing that's happening is they're getting wet. Water doesn't save anyone, only the blood of Jesus Christ. Circumcision doesn't save anyone in the Old Covenant either. It is the sign of relationship, not the source. It's not the source of relationship. And even today, the Protestant, many in the Protestant church have taken water baptism and said that it is the circumcision of the church, and that's why babies get baptized. Look, I know it's been probably pressed into you in your upbringing, pressed into you from your family. You've got to get your kids water baptized. You've got to get your babies water baptized. But God's word says that your kids are to be raised in the training and the admonition of the Lord. And when they confess Jesus as their savior, then they get water baptized. That's what the Bible teaches. And there's no false sense of, there's no need for the false sense of security. God loves your kids. He shows grace to your children and you have the privilege of raising them in the ways of the Lord. And that becomes a faith step for you and your kids, doesn't it? So you're not leaning on a work so you feel comfortable about your kids. You're leaning upon the Lord as you're praying for them, reading to them, teaching them, example to them, so that when they're at that place, they can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for this. Every time I have a little baby, baby dedication, I'm always praying, when they get to the age, when they can receive you, Lord, let it be so, that they might believe in you, and live for you all the days of their life. It's Abram here, this is the old covenant, circumcision. And I also believe that there's the physical part of circumcision, but there's also the circumcision of the heart. Because as we were studying in Acts, as Stephen is talking to the religious, religious rulers, what does he tell them? He knows that they're physically circumcised because they're still following the old covenant, these men, these religious leaders. So what does he say? He calls them uncircumcised. And it would be very easy for them to be upset. No, I can prove to you that I'm physically circumcised. But no, he doesn't say it that way. What does he say? You are uncircumcised in your heart and your ears. Your heart is far from God and you won't even listen to God. It's not been set aside. You have no marks of real relationship with God. And that was a rebuke to them. And they understand it very well. You know why we know they understand what he said very well? They killed him for it. They stoned him for it. Come back to the text as we wind down. Verse 15. Then God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now there are a couple names that, a couple of definitions for Sarai. One we've already learned, it could mean contentious. Another definition, it could mean princess. But here her name is changed to 
where did I leave off? No, here, her name Sarah is, means princess. So let me come back. Sarai is often referred to as contentious. Now her name is changed to princess. And as a princess of God, notice verse 16, I will bless her and I also will give you a son by her. So mark that phrase, I will give you a son, a son by her. I will bless her. She shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be from her. And now Abram falls on his face and laughs. It's a different falling on his face this time. And he said in his heart, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Abraham laughs. Isn't this so much like us? It's so much like me in many ways. I wish I was much greater man of great faith than I am. I've grown over it in the years, but I'm not. I'm not a, I know many other people that are just great men and women of faith. I never have been. I get bogged down with logic and reason and rationalizing. Am I the only one in the room that deals with that? Anyone else? Okay, don't make me feel so alone. I mean, I have faith. I love God. But I want, I, I know that if God would say, hey, you know, Ed, you're 100 years old and your 90-year-old wife's going to have a kid. <laughs> okay, God, sure. And while that's never happened to me, I certainly have. I certainly have chuckled at some of the promises of God. But that's our human nature. Our human nature is not to believe God because we lean on our own understanding. We explain away the promises of God. And maybe you think, I don't lean on my own understanding. Well, let me redefine it for you. We lean on our own understanding, our own education, our own experience, our own memories, our own ability to explain things, our own logic, our own reasoning, our own training. And Abram says, instead, what does Abraham say? This could never happen. I want you to take my Ishmael. Just take Ishmael, I'm 100 years old. We've already done it for you, God. I mean, failure, 13 years of silence, and then what? Here, take our failure. Now again, he's not speaking of Ishmael being the failure, not the child. And I wonder if he's even processing, we don't, we don't really know, that God has said, your son is gonna come from your wife. That's the lineage of Messiah. And he goes, no, we've already done it. We've already done it. Take Ishmael. Take what I did. And Ishmael was a product of Abram's, Abraham, well, really Abram and Sarai's strength and schemes and trying to figure it out, trying to make it happen. And how easy it is for us to tell God to use what we've already done and what we've created. Our prayers are a lot like that. Our prayers are more directive toward God than dependent toward God. God, I, I know, this is what I need and this is how we're going to do it. So just bless the way we figured it out. And it's easier, it's easier to walk in the flesh sometimes than it is in the spirit. And so the answer from God in verse 19, you might want to notice this. Anytime you offer Ishmael to God, your own efforts, your own energies, here's the answer from God. You ready? Verse 19, God said, say it out loud, church. No. I don't, that's not the promise. 
This isn't your gig, Abraham, father of many nations. No. Sarah, your wife, just in case you think it was any other Sarah, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, or laughter. You want to laugh at me? I'm going to give you a little laughter the rest of your life. And I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant, and his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I've heard you. Because, you know, I think that when you think of Ishmael, Abram had a fatherly love toward Ishmael. That was his son. And he had a fatherly love. So I don't know that we can ascribe always that this was, these were ill motives, except that God made a promise to Abraham and he said, I don't want your promise. I already, here, take, just take Ishmael. This is impossible. We, we figured it out. Just take Ishmael. And God says, no, this is how it's going to happen. But for Ishmael, I've heard you, he says, verse 20. And I blessed him and I'll make him fruitful. And I'll multiply him exceedingly. And he shall beget 12 princes and I'll make him a great nation. But notice what he wasn't promised. And this is an answer biblically, very simple answer. Notice what wasn't promised to Ishmael. Did you notice what what wasn't promised to Ishmael that was promised to Abraham? The land. And that's a big problem today in the Middle East, in Israel. That is a huge problem because you have descendants of Abraham fighting over the land promised to Abraham through Isaac. And through Messiah. My covenant, verse 21, I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And he finished talking with him, and God went up from Abraham. So Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all who were born in his house, and all who were bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very same day, just as God had said to him. Abram was 99 years old when he, when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. The very same day Abraham was circumcised and his, his son Ishmael and all the men of his house, born in the house or bought with money from a stranger, were circumcised with him. Immediate obedience. Abraham's learning his lesson When he hears the word no, he responds, immediate obedience. And now this year, one year later, there will be a gift of God named Isaac, bring laughter, and that God will fulfill his promise. And Abraham circumcises everyone that needs to be. I think it was a very painful day for all of the men in his home. But I'm convinced that even as God is preparing you, that he's looking for obedience from you, immediate obedience, I believe he has a ministry for you. He has a word for you. Every time you open the Bible, anytime you turn to prayer, God has, wants to speak to you. He wants to encourage you. He wants the voices of this world to be drowned out by the truth of his word. And through, as you turn to him, he wants to raise you up. He wants to prepare you. He wants you to use you greatly. And listen, church, he wants you to look beyond your own failures so that you might rise above by his grace. He wants you to look beyond your own inabilities. Even in a real way like this, you know, 100 years old, this is impossible, this doesn't happen. God says, with men, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. If God be for us, who can be against us? Even in our imperfections, though a man fall seven times, he will rise again. And that's the testimony of Abraham in this chapter. Father, 
we do receive your overruling power in our lives. Even when we make bad decisions, even when we respond to you faithlessly, your word says in the new covenant that even if we are faithless, you remain faithful. You will not deny yourself. You will keep your promises. I think of the scripture that says, there isn't a word that you have promised that hasn't come to pass. You keep your promises. You are the promise giver and you alone are the perfect promise keeper. And I pray God, as we come to you with our failures and our weaknesses that we're not beset by guilt and shame and regret. I know some among us, they're just so overwhelmed because some of the things in their life, they're not even under their control things that are being done to them. And it's not even under their control. And they're, what did I do? And how could I? And just, Lord, release them and free them that they might walk in victory and receive the promises. It's that very day. Let today be that very day of obedience, no matter how painful it might be, that you might be glorified in our lives tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. And the church says, amen and amen. Let's stand. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.